The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Who was Judas Iscariot? Has he been misunderstood by Orthodox Christianity? Was he possessed by Satan or acting in complicity with Jesus to fulfill the promise of Scripture? And what does his, his character say about the forgiveness of God? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Of all Jesus' disciples, none perhaps is as fascinating as Judas Iscariot, the one who the gospel writers tell us to, uh, portrayed Jesus, betrayed Jesus with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. In recent years, this traditional villain has undergone a new series of reviews, some based on the discovery of a Gnostic text called the Gospel of Judas. The first translation, released to the public by the National Geographic, implied that Judas was acting according to Jesus' wish- wishes, that they, in fact, had conspired together to bring about Jesus' death. However, a later translation with a more complete text suggests the opposite, that Judas was, in fact, an archdemon beyond forgiveness. To discuss all this with us today is James Bean, a recurring guest on this show. James is a comparative religion scholar, book reviewer, author, public speaker, and broadcaster with a broad familiarity with global religions and spiritual traditions. He's been involved with public radio, Radio for Peace International, the Community Radio Movement, Wisdom Radio, and is an independent producer currently creating programs for several stations. James, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi, Lee. Good to have you back. Great to be here. James is my go-to guy for all things Gnostic. Yes, and, the lobbyist uh, <laughs> for the Gnostic Gospels. <laughs> and you and I happened to see uh, a recent CNN presentation on the Gospel of Judas, and I thought it could be of interesting uh, of interest to the listeners especially in light of the very different conclusions drawn from the two translations yeah yeah i've enjoyed that cnn series uh, the latest one was on the the burial box of james the just uh and uh yeah that's a very nice series the, the last week was the one on the gospel of judas and i thought they did a very good job uh, presenting the the scholarship, the views and opinions, you know, at present, you know, about the Gospel of Judas. I was quite happy with that. It was you know, very informed. Whoever produced that did a good job at getting yeah, all the I thought, info. Thought it was very balanced. But the um, the interesting thing to me is the fact that after it was discovered and uh, it went through a, a long period where it was not being uh, examined properly and not being stored properly and right. so forth, that the National Geographic came out with a text that made uh, Judas apparently complicit with Jesus in Jesus' death. And then uh, someone else came along afterwards, uh, April DeConnick, and said, no, no, that's completely mistranslated and here's the real meaning. So maybe you could talk a little about that. Yeah, yeah, with the discovery of some of these documents, uh if they're if they seem like they have a lot of potential, uh like the Gospel of Jesus's wife fragment, uh or in the case of the Gospel of Judas where there is someone that really knows this would make an awesome TV special. <laughs> there is sometimes this uh, uh pressure 
to rush to, to publication of some translation before all of the homework is, is done. In the case of the Gospel of Jesus' Wife fragment, uh, during the very week when, I think it was the Smithsonian Channel, one of those cable satellite channels, I think it was Smithsonian, uh, came out with a special about the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. Uh, during that same week, it, uh, a number of other scholars weighed in on that discovery and thought that it was a forgery, and the part of it being likely a forgery has stuck. And so, uh-oh, Gospel of Jesus' Wife, mm, probably not a legitimate discovery. Uh, in the case of the Gospel of Judas, uh, it is an ancient text. The ink and the papyrus <laughs> all do date back, and everyone is pretty satisfied that it is an ancient uh, text, a uh, gospel written during the second century A.D. And and these gospels are like storytelling, you know, different uh, different stories are being communicated, and it's just a tradition of storytelling uh, going on with with a number of these uh, gospels. Uh, it was discovered in Egypt. Uh, I guess by some, I don't know who discovered it, some, some Coptic, uh, or Egyptians, <laughs> no doubt, uh, found in this cave, this box containing uh, a number of Coptic books. There was the Gospel of Judas, uh, First Apocalypse of James, a letter of Peter to Philip, uh, another book of Allegenus, it's called, and some other stuff. I think a piece of the book of Exodus and a book about math and maybe some other fragment, I forget. But it's very much like the Nag Hammadi. It's the same type of material that the Nag Hammadi was. In fact, the Gospel of Judas is so similar, it could have been part of the Nag Hammadi library discovery mm. of Gnostic texts. It dates back, it's Coptic, it's uh, second century. And uh, it's, it is an interesting book with a provocative title, Gospel of Judas. So it, it catches people's attention certainly. Uh, like some of the other Gnostic Gospels, it's very ethereal and otherworldly, uh, visionary, uh, with with a luminous Christ like, like Paul on the road to Damascus, seeing this blinding light uh, of the resurrected Christ. So too in the uh, Gospel of Judas, there is a luminous Christ and a, light, a bright light at times, and very visionary, very otherworldly. Uh, this, this was a book originally used by a group called the Sethians. This, this, and many of the Gnostic Gospels are Sethian texts. Uh, this was a Jewish Christian sect. I think it started out as being a, a Jewish group uh, heavily influenced by Platonist thought, a Greek, Greek philosophy, uh, kind of interfacing with Judaism, and then at some point uh, interfacing with Christianity or the Jesus movement. Uh, but they were not very sympathetic to the Twelve Apostles, and they didn't really care for Orthodox Christianity during the second century. <laughs> and so the Gospel of Judas is essentially kind of a document uh, going out of its way to distance itself from Orthodox Christianity, saying, you know, we don't like the direction that the mainstream church is going in, and here are some things that we disagree with. So, kind of in the spirit of Martin Luther, <laughs> mm. this thing was uh, written uh, kind of being critical of of uh, Christianity in the second century, 
mainstream Christianity during the second century, uh, written from a, a point of view of Sethian Christianity, Sethian Gnostic Christianity. That's really mm. the the owner, the owners of this book, <laughs> the Gospel now, of Judas. They uh, the the Gospel of Judas implies that the other disciples just didn't get it. They were right. too too dense, and that uh, Jesus and Judas had this special relationship. But, yeah, yeah, and that's kind of a pattern too in some of these books. There's the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and Mary is the kind of wife of the the Master, if you will, and understands him better than the others. In the Gospel of Thomas, uh, Thomas is the one who is uh, who gets it, who who understands the message. Uh, the Book of Acts and Paul's letters in the New Testament have Paul being the one who's uh, you know task with spreading the gospel, and he's the one that yes. truly understands. It's kind of a pattern. And, and of so course, Paul is, Paul is the one that had a near-death experience, and so uh, some of his theology could have come through that. I think so, yeah. He had his own gnosis. Paul, Gnostic Paul, had his own, yeah, spirituality. Uh, and uh, we don't really know a lot about Paul, hmm. other than he w- was a former... Pharisee, I guess, but he certainly made quite a change, became a different sort of guy. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, now, how do you account for the fact that uh, the National Geographic translators had this uh, conspiracy between Jesus and Judas, and the follow-up translation with, I guess, apparently with more material, a more complete text, said, no, no, Judas was actually a demon, not a good spirit, but a bad spirit, who uh, who was never going to see heaven, given what he'd done. Yeah, there's a yeah, there are two different uh, schools of thought, and that sometimes is the case with these writings. You know, you get different schools of thought about what things mean, and you've got the good Judas scholars, like uh, Marvin Meyer, and you've got the the evil Judas. Scholars like April DeConnick <laughs> that translate some certain passages differently, so you have a very different outcome. You know, you've got in one Judas is the hero, following orders, doing what he's supposed to, playing a role, and the other is a more sinister Judas who's you know working for the the dark side. Right. Well, so much of this is interesting today, I think, because we're all looking for an all forgiving God. And if God can forgive Judas, he can forgive anyone. Uh, whereas the traditional, the Orthodox Christian church would say, no, no, you've got, uh, you've got to pay for what you do. Right. Yeah. Huzur Baba Sewansing was once asked about, uh, Judas and, and he was a master from India. He said that Judas was forgiven and is sitting in the lap of Christ in heavenly places. Well, this is what the, uh, you know, a lot of the near-death experiencers, uh, say about, about their feeling of what's waiting for us on the other side. And, uh, a lot of New Agers and are, are very, uh, I guess you'd call them universalist in their take on, on what kind of judgment we face for our deeds on, on Earth. Yeah, a forgiving God. For real. <laughs> Do Gnostics tend to believe that more than the traditional texts? I think 
so. I, I think there. I think there's less exclusivism in well, certainly the Gospel of Thomas. I think you have a, a God for everyone, uh, without regard to sect, sectarian affiliation. Uh, so, you know, more. I think Origin of Alexandria uh, embodies that too—the uh, belief that everyone makes it back to God in the end. Some are traveling faster, perhaps, but uh, his doctrine was uh, the reconciliation of all things. It was called. One of the reasons I'm interested in Judas these days is that our church is going to do a play uh, called the, La- the Last Days of Judas Iscariot by uh, Stephen Adley Gurgis. It was, uh, I think, produced in New York originally uh, around 2005, 2006. And it has Judas in hell, but only because he's chosen to be there. He's almost catatonic because of his own guilt. And Jesus is, has forgiven him, is forgiving him, and he just can't accept the forgiveness. Ah, that's an interesting take on, on it, actually. Yeah, it's an interesting take. The, uh, it's our choice, uh, our, our perception whether we accept the forgiveness or not. Maybe they'll have to update that play with a few passages from the Gospel of Judas <laughs> in the revised version. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how the writer would feel, but um, <clears throat> it is, um, uh, I guess, a, a big question, too, in the, in the minds of people who've had uh, dark NDEs as to whether they themselves are putting them putting their, their uh, consciousness into a box or into a dark place or into a, a place in space that makes them feel very much alone because of their own um, inability to accept the love that God's offering them. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that could be it, I, I, I suppose. <clears throat> or they don't think that they deserve it or, and aren't expecting it or are resisting it in some way. Uh, not saying yes to it, as if we have that kind of freedom of choice beyond you know more freedom than we realize we have that we that we can choose to uh, accept that love or not that yeah, that God is such that God does not force Himself upon us and you know respects our sovereignty. You might say, right? It would be interesting to think you know not only do we have free will on Earth, but we also have free will. At, after our deaths in deciding our own fate. That's been my impression from what I've read of uh, near-death accounts and, and certainly all of these uh, scriptures, East and West, including uh, some Christian mystical texts, uh, yeah, that we have um, freedom of uh, choice, that, that we can uh, choose how close to get to God or how far. You know, it's kind of our choice, you know, Sticking our toe in the water, diving completely in, being just on the shoreline, being a few miles back from the shoreline. <laughs> we have that choice, uh, and no one, and and uh, you know, it's not a matter of uh, force. Uh, so, in that sense, I guess all of this talk, you know, uh, what does it go back to? The Calvinism, free will. Of course, they also have predestination, which sounds a bit, sounds a bit. Uh, 
Sounds uh, heavy. He- heavy, you know. <laughs> but the idea of free will, uh, freedom to choose, you know, that that's a really big deal. I, I think that's true. I think free will is a big deal. <laughs> mm. And then there's the question of evil. Uh, in this play, um, Satan is one of the characters, although at the end, uh, not to give away the, the story to people who might want to come to the play, but Jesus tells Judas, you know, try to touch him. He's vapor. He's nothing. Uh, Satan just, it's not, it's a, something that we have conjured. It's ah. not real. Well, and, and perhaps in the same way that, uh, darkness is merely the absence of light. Mm-hmm. And in, in, like the, the saying goes, uh, it's better to, to light a candle than to curse the darkness a thousand times. Or perhaps you could say it's more effective just to turn the light on. Uh, exactly. Say, Cursed be the darkness, you know, and then, so in that sense, the darkness is nothing or shadow, uh, and instantly is overruled by the presence of light. What does the Gospel of Thomas say about evil? Does it uh, address the subject? Trying to remember specifically, it describes the human condition in a way that you could say, you know, humanity is giving in to evil and is being misled by its uh, belief systems, and if you don't bring forth from, you know, from within you uh, that which is there, then what you don't bring forth will destroy you, or, you know, I'm trying to paraphrase a a saying in there uh, about, uh, it's as if we have this potential to experience the kingdom of God right now, right here during this life. But alas, people are off doing other things, caught up in the in the dream, in the distractions of the world, and including religious distractions and distractions like uh, prophecy, end time prophecy, and getting caught up in all of this speculation. And so I've just paraphrased that as looking for the kingdom in all the wrong places, mm. uh, <laughs> which is like paraphrasing a, a lyric from a song from couple decades ago <laughs> uh it's, well it's true um a lot of this um <clears throat> fear of uh, armageddon or uh the end times though comes out of christianity where jesus return is is uh, prophesied and therefore people are even since the time of paul have been waiting for that to happen yeah yeah and uh <clears throat> that that was a big debate in early christianity uh, and I tend to side with the Gnostics and, and Thomas on that one, uh, because um, it, it seems, <clears throat> for me, the, the contemplative person, the, the mystic, uh, finds a present tense kingdom of heaven in the here and now. And that's really the focus of the Gospel of Thomas and a lot of these other uh, uh, Gnostic Gospels as well, is finding God now, during this life, in this moment. Uh and the the idea of putting the kingdom of God into the future, the future is always the future. It's never a present tense reality, so, something we can touch, something we can enter into. It's always always in the future. And so the the mystic approach is to find the kingdom of God now. So it's it's closer to uh, the near death experience and meditation or mystical experience, a uh, kingdom of heaven that's invisible to the naked eye, but is like radio waves, uh, infrared, ultraviolet, X-rays, you 
know, kind of a, a different dimension or on other frequencies, but right here, right now, can be available potentially if we can uh, discover how to interact with it through a, a spiritual practice. Whereas the the future kingdom, as described by the prophecy people, is very physical. It you know comes down from the sky, and armies fight with God, and and there's blood and guts and and uh, apocalyptic stuff, and it's it sort of turned into a a physical thing that comes down uh, to the earth, and so. I, I I tend to favor the mystic approach, and when I when I you know prophecy and and the idea of a, a physical kingdom of heaven on earth, or you might say political government being established with Jerusalem the capital of the planet, I suppose that leaves me cold. <laughs> it's and and the you know, antichrist and tribulation and all of that stuff. It's like. Nah, can we change the channel? Because <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it doesn't even sound like the same Jesus, the same uh, thing, really. But it, it sounds uh, like an early, like the Book of Revelation is an early example of uh, science fiction, you know, like what you'd see on the sci-fi channel. Mm. Would you say there are Gnostic elements in uh, Revelation? Well, there are in that if if we if we take away how it's been interpreted by people over the the generations, the Hal Lindsays and the prophecy people, the Millerites of the nineteenth century, uh, and just kind of imagine it's a newly discovered book that we just found in the in the Middle East, like Judas. Uh, we would find it to be kind of uh, out of body or. I mean, there are parallels between the book of Revelation and other revelations. The The word apocalypse, although it's come to mean bad things happening, war and pestilence and so on, uh, the word apocalypse means revelation. And usually apocalyptic writings that were studied in early Christianity and, and uh, by the Essenes, the, like the books of Enoch, uh, those are... Uh, revelations about the heavens. So those are kind of, uh, you, you could call them out-of-body experiences, Merkava mysticism, the thro- exploring the throne of God, uh, angels, the heavens. And so it's really just revelations about heaven and, and the heavens and the angels and the goings-on in, in heavenly places. That's what the word apocalypse means, revelation. Mm-hmm. So it's come to mean bad things happening and end of days. Uh, but it really, the word apocalypse just means revelation, and revelation is re- referring to uh, being caught up to the, the heavens, seeing mm-hmm. the throne, and you know, which is how the book of Revelation does start. <laughs> yes. Yep, checking out things uh, in the heaven. The trumpets blow, and, and that calls, seems to call the soul above Come up right. hither, and I will show you these things. The seals are opened, and the trumpets are blown, and all these uh, pretty scary things happen, according to the text. Well, you know, uh, the book of Revelation, and, and some have interpreted a lot of that as being stuff uh, that originally was applied to the Roman Empire under, uh, is it Nero? I think it was Nero. Uh, and so the his number shall be 666. I think that was 
the Roman emperor. Yes, his uh, name does come down to 666. Yeah, and, and so although we keep reinterpreting, and what's re- what I found to be really fascinating was to get an old evangelical book on prophecy that was published in the 1920s, Mm-hmm. And and to see who they thought the Antichrist was, and and you just immediately come to see what goes on. You get a book from the seventies, you know, Henry Kissinger. His name adds up to six six six. He might mm-hmm. be the Antichrist, and you know, and in the forties, and th- you know, it was Hitler. He's the Antichrist, and so mm-hmm. so each generation uh, takes a look at the the headlines and adjusts their interpretation of Scripture. So for a while, Saddam Hussein and Iraq, uh, they were finding passages about Babylon. Ah, you know. So we keep doing this. Whether it's Hitler, Hitler the Kaiser, <laughs> mm-hmm. we keep kind of uh, reinterpreting our interpretation so that it always seems like these prophecies are about to be fulfilled. Henry Kissinger, his name adds up to to 666 if you're in 1974 uh, writing a book on prophecy. (laughs) Well, there's been a recent, uh, I don't know how recent it is, but a series on uh, Nostradamus on TV, and uh, they love to reinterpret Nostradamus, too, Right. According right. according to uh because it's also cryptic anyway. Yeah, but his yeah. his three antichrists, according to this series, uh began with Napoleon and then yeah. was Hitler, and then the third will be the big one. But uh you know, given given any period in time, I'm sure Nostradamus's prophecies were being interpreted and reinterpreted and re reinterpreted. Oh, there's been so many nasty characters on the world stage from, you know, uh, d- dictators of Spain and and uh, Germany and France. Uh, and, yeah, there, there's always someone that can fulfill that role. Yeah, the, the and to some extent the Book of Revelation also uh, and the quatrains of Nostradamus. Uh, when you have vague verses with with all symbolism, it's like tea leaves. Uh, and they will, you know, uh, or alphabet soup, or or clouds in the sky. Sometimes they look like things. You know, clouds can look like dragons, or tanks, or planes. And sometimes the uh, the tea leaves are interpreted. You know, and and it's really in the eye of the beholder how how a quatrain is interpreted, and this changes right. over time. And that's the brilliance of it. <laughs> you know, yes, that's keep it vague enough. Keep it vague yeah. enough, and it won't be disproved. Yeah, I want to come back. Be accurate. There'll always be a Napoleon to come along, or a Kaiser Wilhelm, or you know, or Henry Kissinger, or or uh, vague symbols can be interpreted as missiles being launched, or tanks, or or helicopters, or you know. <laughs> yes, they they do see helicopters in in some of the uh, insect analogies, I guess. I yeah, uh, yeah. I wanted I wanted before we run out of time, James. I wanted to come back to. Judas for just a minute and ask when the Sethians wrote this gospel do you think they wrote it as a work of fiction or a work of philosophy they didn't actually they knew that it wasn't actually written by Judas so right. uh, how, what was the what was their take on it do you suppose I think they were telling a story and the story uh, illustrates uh, truths, uh, spiritual truths about other realms. Uh, uh, Sethianism is all about Platonism, 
and the view that there are these other heavenly realms. I, I think for them, Christ was also Seth. I think Seth, the great figure Seth, was for them an earlier incarnation of, of Christ. And so that was like a, a heavenly figure uh, for them. And that's why they adopted Christianity and didn't see any contradiction. You know, they're another Jewish group that morphed into a Christian group, which is, of course, what many did back during those days. And I, I think they were just venting their angst against the direction of mainstream Christianity and uh, rituals and uh, the apostolic claims of apostolic succession. Uh, and they were telling a story illustrating spiritual truths. But, yeah, behind that is an agenda to comment. It's really commentary on Christianity during the second century and how they had a, they were voicing a, their disagreements with Orthodox Christianity and presenting right. a different version of Christianity, uh, presenting their spirituality. So they were saying that uh, the uh, apostles really didn't get the, the message, or at least as communicated during the second century. Uh, they didn't get it. And it's, it's up, up, up for grabs whether they think Judas was another bad guy or a good guy. It depends on who you, whose translation you follow. <laughs> if, if Judas and, and was that, also one of those nefarious apostles or the, or the hero of the story. Right, and that's true right down to today. Uh, yep. James, uh, <clears throat> you have an amazing website, and uh, you should tell uh, the listeners how they can find uh, your website and your radio programs and writings. Yeah, and I can send people writings on Gnostic Gospels. I've written a number of things. Uh, just uh, My website is spiritualawakeningradio.com, and they can contact me through the website if they want me to send them my uh, Fall and Rise of the Gnostics article. Ah, oh, very good. Well, James, we're out of time, unfortunately. Wow, <laughs> it sure does. It sure does. My thanks to James Bean for today's edition of Ions NDE Radio. For more information about IANS, our services and news about near-death experience, please go to our website at iands.org. And join us next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. Thanks for listening.